you would take your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 14 to 18 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. On June 12, 1987, some of the most iconic words were spoken. Following Germany's defeat in 1945 and World War II, Germany's capital of Berlin was divided off into four sections. The three sections in the West eventually became West Germany or West Berlin under the co cooperation of the free world. However, East Berlin or East Germany was held by the oppressive Soviet Union. In 1961, the East German government built a wall between East and West Berlin in order to stop the mass exodus of people out of East Germany, East Berlin, into West Germany. And for the next 28 years, that wall stood not only as a barrier between East and West, but it also served as a divisive symbol of oppression. Well, fast forward a few years from that point, and after many years of Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, President Ronald Reagan, on June 12, 1987, gave an impassioned speech at the Brandenburg Gate with that wall of separation as his backdrop. President Reagan said to the Soviet Union and to its leaders, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, from the first human sin onward, separation and hostility have harmed the human race. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Disagreements, divisiveness, violence, anger, hatred towards people. People different from ourselves has damaged humanity and has marred the image of God within us. And usually our response to that strife, our response to that hatred, when that rules over us as a people, our natural response is to, to remove ourselves from that, to try to remove ourselves from that, and to erect barriers that try to stop that oppression or that, that hatred, that strife from getting to us. And it may work in some degree to that, but the problem with those barriers is that it separates us from people. You look at our world, our nation, and how torn up it is, how separated, how divided it is. Is there any hope for a world this torn up? Is there any hope for a nation that is this divided? Is there any hope for, for families that are torn apart by strife? Is there any hope for reconciliation among people? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, those verses tell us that there is hope, and he has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. Let's read together verses 11 to 18, 11 to 13 we looked at last week, but to kind of run us into what we're looking at this morning, let's start in verse 11. Ephesians 2, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But 
now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace." And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came, that's Christ, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. In these verses, we see two main themes, and I want to cover them briefly, just kind of give us the broad outline of where we're going. The first theme we see in this passage of Scripture is community. There's a shift in verses 14 to 18 that we didn't see from what we saw in in verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, the phrasing was us and them, they and we. But instead of that, the, the theme now in verses 14 to 18 is our, we, both coming together. So we see this theme of community. Secondly, we see Christ. Christ as the central character of this passage. Look at the verbs in verses 14 to 18, vivid verbs in this passage. It says he made both one. He broke down, abolished, created, reconciles, puts to death, and preached. Those aren't things that are just happening. Christ is the subject of each one of those things. Jesus Christ is the one doing the action in this passage. And so as we teach and preach through this, and as you, as you learn about this passage today, what we want to do is exalt Christ through this scripture, as we would want to do in any scripture. But we want to highlight this morning his work on our behalf. And I think by doing that here in Ephesians 2, we actually pattern ourselves after what God does for Christ. Remember Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, where it says that God has highly exalted Christ and that when Christ is exalted, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? That's what we want to do. As we lift up Christ today, we pray that God will draw all of us to him. And so let's look at what Christ does in this passage. First of all, Christ, we see this in verse 14 and in a couple other verses. First of all, Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. That phrase there, he himself, is emphatic in the Greek. What it means, it doesn't just say he is our peace, it says he himself. What he's getting at in the Greek is he and he alone. No one else is our peace. Now notice here, it's not just that he gives peace. It doesn't say Christ gives peace, which he does. It's not that just he brings peace, which he does. It's even more than that. He says Christ is the peace. For he himself is our peace. See, peace is not a feeling. It's not a vibe. It's not a hand gesture, right? Peace, bro. It's not that. Peace is a person, and his name is what? Jesus Christ. 
Peace is a person. The Old Testament told us about this. Isaiah 9, verse 6, it said, it gives this whole list about Christ coming, and he is wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Micah 5, verse 5, prophesied of Jesus the Messiah and said about Jesus, this one, this one shall be peace. See, Christ is our peace because by believing in him, we are at peace with God. He is our peace. Through him, we have peace with God. If you remember back to verse 11 and 12 here of chapter 2, there was a barrier separating the Gentiles from God. That barrier was sin. Sin is always evil. Evil is the absence of peace. But then verse 13 comes along in chapter 2 and tells us that the Gentiles have been brought near to God by Christ. That barrier of sin, what was separating us from God, is broken by whom? Christ, his blood, who is, verse 14, our peace. He is our peace. And Christ's blood removes our sin, removes that evil, so that therefore it can be replaced with peace. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God because we are where? We are in Christ. Christ is our peace. But that's not all this verse is telling us, this passage is telling us. Not only is Christ our peace for peace with God, but he is also our peace for peace with others. And that's where this passage takes us. Verse 14 and following shows us this. Verse 14 says, Christ is our peace. He has made us both one. Verse 15 says, he created in himself one new man from the two and has made peace. Verse 16 says, he reconciles us both to God in one body. Verse 17 says, he preaches peace to the far off ones, that's the Gentiles, and to the ones who are near, that's the Jews. See, the Jews and Gentiles, we talked about this a little bit last week, the Jews and the Gentiles Gentiles have hardly ever been at peace with one another. Hardly ever. So how how can God take two ethnicities that often hate each other and make them to be at peace, to be united with each other? Look at the end of verse 15. It says that he created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The word for make there is to create. Christ creates peace where there was none. He makes peace where there was none. And because of Christ, because of his life, his work, his death, his existence, these warring factions against each other, these warring ethnicities, warring people can have peace. Christ is peace. There's a great illustration of this that happened in 1914 during World War I. German and and British forces were were deeply entrenched in battle against each other. As you know from World War I, countless lives were lost. There There was great hostility, great animosity between the two sides. But on Christmas Eve, in some areas of the Western front lines, something incredible happened. 
On Christmas Eve, in the darkness of that night, as the guns fell silent, voices were heard on either side singing Christmas carols. The German soldiers were singing Christmas carols, and one German soldier yelled out to his British counterparts. He said, come over here. The British responded with, well, meet us halfway. And some German soldiers and some British soldiers start, start very uh, carefully, very cautiously, climbing out of their trenches, and they begin to meet up halfway across the battlefield. And they start exchanging Christmas greetings and handshakes and, and different supplies. In one section of the front lines, this picture was taken. A soccer game actually broke out on Christmas Day between German soldiers and British soldiers during World War I. It came to be known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. The Christmas Truce of 1914. Today, this memorial stands in the English National Memorial Arboretum to commemorate the few hours of peace amid a deadly war. Isn't that an incredible story? What was it that brought that peace? It was thoughts of Christ in his birth. That the mind, the heart being turned to thoughts of Christ can bring peace amid war. The problem with this illustration is it's not a perfect illustration, as most are. Because a few hours later, these soldiers resumed their fighting, resumed the killing. So unlike the Christmas truce of 1914, our peace in Christ, that is peace with God and peace with others, is not to last for just a few hours. It's to last forever. We have peace with God for eternity in Christ. And we are to have peace with each other for eternity in Christ. So Christ is our peace. Secondly, here we see in verses 14 and following that Christ has made us one. Christ has made us one. The work that Christ does here is not just to bring peace to two different groups. He doesn't just give peace and then leave them separate as groups, right? Here's a little peace for you over here. Stay there, do your thing. Here's a little peace for you over here. Stay there and do your thing. No, that's not the picture we get here. Instead, it says he doesn't leave them as separate groups. He actually brings them together. Look at these phrases in verses 14 to 18. In verse 14, it says he has made both one. In verse 15, he has made one new man from the two. In verse 16 and verse 18, you see the word both. In verse 16, you see the words one body. This is incredible. Christ is doing something remarkable here. He's not just bringing peace so that separate groups can go on their merry separate ways. It doesn't do a whole lot, does it? Rather, he is our peace so that separate groups can be brought together. He is giving peace in order to unite what was once divided both in a sense of God and us, who as we saw in 11 and 12, were divided, were separated. He has brought us together. And both in the sense of two warring factions or two different people with two different backgrounds or maybe different thoughts or different opinions or wherever it might be. Look around this room. This is practical. 
Because God has brought people of different backgrounds and different places and different statuses and different things in life, different goals and all these things, and He brings us together. He unites what once was separated. He doesn't just bring peace so that I can have peace in my own little bubble and so that you can have peace in your own little bubble. He brings us peace. He is our peace so that we can be brought together. You say, how does He do that? How does He do that? Look at verses 14 and 15. First off, he removes what separated them. Christ removes what separated these people. Verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Hey, what does that mean? What is it that's being referred to? What is it that Christ removed from between the Jew and the Gentile? What did he remove there? If you think back to the Old Testament in Exodus and Leviticus, God provides Israel, he gives Israel the ceremonial law. That, that would be the things that they could and couldn't do, the things they could and couldn't eat, the things they could and couldn't wear, the special days, the festivals, the Sabbaths, these types of things. That was the ceremonial way that when the Jew kept those things, he was considered ceremonially clean before God. But it wasn't just for that. It was also the ceremonial law that made the Jew distinct from the Gentile because the Gentile didn't do those things, didn't follow that law. And so as the Jew kept the law of God, they were different from the Gentile who did not keep the law. And so that ceremonial law acts as a barrier between Jew and Gentile. That the Jew was clean when he kept it. The Gentile, unclean, because he didn't even have it. And so the two, under the law, the ceremonial law, were not one. They were two completely separate groups. But notice what it says. It says in verse 14 that Jesus has broken down the middle wall of separation. He has abolished in his flesh the enmity. What's the enmity? The law of commandments contained in ordinances. It says Jesus has abolished this law. Probably the, the, the better or clearer translation there in uh, that verse is actually that Jesus nullified it or he made it inoperative. He, did, he didn't just get rid of it. He didn't completely destroy the law. Instead, he made the law of no effect. It wasn't in control anymore. It's lost its power. Remember Jesus, he comes along, he says, I have fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all the ceremonial requirements. He rendered it unnecessary. See, because of Jesus and his death on the cross, cleansing is no longer through ceremony. It is through Christ. Cleansing is no longer through ceremony. It is through Christ. Christ. So then between the Jew and the Gentile, because of Christ's death, that ceremonial law which has been fulfilled and has lost its power and effectiveness, that no longer separates the Jew and the Gentile. See, in Christ, Gentiles are not ceremonially unclean anymore. In Christ, Jews are not superior. They're not closer. They're not more holy than Gentiles. Gentiles and Jews now in Christ have the same God the same Savior, the same access, the same hope, the same future. And the same is true for each one of us in the church. Christ has made us both, all, one. 
He has brought together what used to be divided, what used to go in its own separate ways and do its own separate thing. He's brought that together. See, in Christ, we don't have to be separated from others who also are in Christ. We don't separate because of our ethnicity or our gender or our version of law-keeping or our status or our background. We are separated from the world, but we are united with other believers, not because of the law, but because of what? Who? Christ. Because of Christ. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Paul illustrates this for us in, in verse 14 here. In the end of verse 14, he says that he has broken down the middle wall of separation. What is going on there? He's broken down the middle wall of separation. This could be Paul referencing the temple area. Gentiles in the temple were free to come to an area called the court of the Gentiles. They could come there, but they could not go any further. They were unclean. They could look from a distance, but they couldn't go in and enjoy the fellowship with the Jews and go closer to the, to the holy place or the holy of holies. Now, God established this, and he initially established the, the court of the Gentiles to be a place of witness for the Jews. The Jew was supposed to be a positive witness for a relationship with God to the Gentiles, but the, the Jews turned the court of the Gentiles into a place of derision. And Jesus comes along later, and he cleanses the temple. That's the area he cleanses, and he calls it a den of robbers and thieves. It's become something that it was not intended to be. Between the Gentiles' courtyard and the rest of the temple, the Jews erected a wall. They erected a wall, and that wall is a vivid example of the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles could stay in their courtyard. Only Jews could go through the gates past that wall. In fact, at the gates on this wall of separation were signs written in Greek and Latin. In English, the sign reads this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Death for any Gentile that enters. But here's the goodness and power of Christ. That warning no longer applies. That warning no longer applies. Why? Because Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation. As Christ's death literally tore the curtain, remember that? Separating the holy place from the holy of holies. When Christ died, it is finished. The curtain tore, and that symbolized for us access to God. So as Christ's death literally tore the curtain, so figuratively it also broke down this wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile. So now we have, with the curtain torn, we have access to God. With the wall broken down, we have access to each other in peace. Christ has made us one by removing what separates us. But notice this, he also makes us one because he also, verse 16, reconciles them both to God in one body. 
Not only does Christ tear down what divides us, but he also reconciles both parties to God. Reconciliation is a great word. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All these things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. See, the Jews in Christ are reconciled to God. The Gentiles in Christ are reconciled to God. And our reconciliation to God has immense ramifications for us. It's not just that we are made right with God. But when we are reconciled to God, we are also to be reconciled with each other. With all those who also have been reconciled to God. See, our reconciliation is both vertical with God, and horizontal with others. Both are brought to God. Therefore, both are brought to each other. You can't have people in God that are also together. He does not just reconcile them to himself and leave them separated from each other. No, he's taken two separate groups and he's made them one new group. He has in verse 16, put to death the enmity. He killed the hostility by making two warring men one united man. The Greek word for new, if you look at this in verse six, uh, 15, the end of verse 15, to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The Greek word for new is kanon. Guess what it means? New. I'm serious. That is exactly what it means. It means new. Brand spanking new. Now, oftentimes when we think of something new, we think, oh man, I just got a new car, right? But honestly, that's not what it means. Because when you get a new car, you're getting a new car to you, but there's thousands of other ones just like it, right? That's not what it has in mind here. It's not something new of which there are thousands of others. This is something new God is doing that has never, ever been seen before. God has done something in Christ that he has never done before. What do you mean? Remember with me, all humans are part of humanity, right? We are all descendants of Adam. That's the community that we inherently belong to. Humanity is our community. Every single person made in the image of God belongs to humanity, a child of Adam. But here's what this is getting at. See, in Christ and under Christ, who's called the second Adam, God has made a new community. Brand spanking new. Never before seen. Never before done by God. In verse 15, it's called one new man. In verse 16, it's called one body. You say, what then is this new man? What is this one body? You ready? It is the church. It's the church. And, and, and Christ's death and the ensuing, ensuing things that he has done after that to establish his church. Remember, he told us, Matthew 16, I will build my church. God is saying here, Paul's saying in this passage, that's never been done before. God's never worked in this way where he's brought all these warring different people together and made one new man. See, it's the body of Christ that is in view here. All those whom he has redeemed with his blood. 
They come from all over, don't they? Culturally, they are as unique and as different as as can possibly be. Jews belong to the church. Gentiles now belong to the church. Australians belong to the church. Africans belong to the church. South Americans belong to the church. Here's the point. God has one church. And that would be important for the Ephesians. Because remember, Ephesus was a huge city. It was a very Roman city. And so you probably do have some Jews that have, that have left uh, Israel and Jerusalem and have come out that way. You have Gentiles, definitely. You have Romans who have come to Christ and are in the church in Ephesus. You have some travelers. You have some that were involved in prostitution before they came to Christ. You have some that were previously idol worshipers at the temple of Diana, and they've now come to Christ. You say, what do we do with all these different people? You say, they are all because of Christ in the church. That's the power of God. He can take all of that and bring it together. Now, in a universal way, he's bringing people from far parts of the globe, and he's bringing them together. And guess what? May I say this? That's the universal church, but guess what should represent or should look like the universal church? The local, right? We're not all from one one same background. We don't all look alike. We we welcome those who, who don't look, who don't come from the same background. Why? Because in Christ... It is one new man. There's not a body of Christ for the Jews and a separate body of Christ for Gentiles. There's not a body of Christ for black people and and one for white people. In Christ and in the church, those are not spiritual distinctions anymore. They aren't. Galatians 3 verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. From our scripture reading earlier, Romans 10, 12, and 13, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have spiritual union regardless of our ethnic, social, or physical differences because all who are in Christ are his. The barriers have been broken down by Christ. Who do we think we are when we start a construction project and build them back up again? The barriers are broken down in Christ. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Look at verse 18 as well. We see that Christ is our peace, that Christ has made us one. Here we see that Christ gives us access to God. For through him, verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Access to God, remember, symbolized by the ripping of that curtain in the temple. When Jesus died and we are now granted access to come before God. Notice in this verse, we see three things. That access is, number one, exclusive access. And where do you see that? It says, for through him, we both have access. Through him. The word exclusive is a buzzword, isn't it? You'll watch the news or something and say, we have this exclusive access. We have this exclusive coverage, right? 
or, or maybe an early movie release. You know, you're going to have exclusive access to this movie release. Or you get to go to the game and you sit in box seats, right? And it's only the exclusive company that you have, the exclusive people that get to be there. Well, guess what? Access to God is also exclusive. Exclusive for whom? For those who are in Christ. Through him. There is no other access point to God than through Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many get to God without Christ? How many get to God apart from Christ? Not one. That's exclusive access, isn't it? It's exclusive. John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. The door of the sheepfold. No one comes in except through me. Access is only granted through Christ. If you do not come to God through Christ, it is access denied. You know, that's, that's the gospel in a snippet. If you do not re- repent and believe in Christ, if you are not saved from your sins, you do not have God as your father, you do not have eternal life. So the call today is turn to Christ. He is the only way of salvation. There's not multiple ways, and you cannot do it on your own. You must turn to Christ. Christ is the way of salvation. He gives us exclusive access. Notice, too, he gives us equal access. It says, for through him we both. The both in view here is the Jew and the Gentile, the far-off ones and the near ones. What he's saying is, hey, guys, the wall is down. The curtain is torn. Both Jew and Gentile have equal access to God. There's not one group that gets to go to the front of the line because guess what? There is no line when it comes to access to God. We all get to go to the throne room of God. So it's exclusive, it's equal, it's also unlimited. And this is a theme we see throughout Scripture. The unlimited access that we who are in Christ have to God. God wants us to come to Him. He wants us to call out to Him. Jeremiah 33.3, Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing. James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, good luck. No, he says, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was, that's Christ, in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore... Come boldly to the throne room of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need that, don't we? We need that strength. We need that mercy. We need that grace in time of need. I would say that in our country today, the church is suffering from a pandemic. And it's not the one you might think. Our church is suffering from a pandemic of prayerlessness. God wants to hear from you. He wants you to call out to him. When we get the opportunity to stay in a, in a hotel, our family, the boys, they kind of all, all argue over uh, who gets the little hotel key card, right? 
and who can swipe it and get us in the door. The problem is we stand there like a bunch of idiots because, you know, you got to swipe that thing and then kind of turn it at just the right moment. you got like half a millisecond to turn it and then get in there. So they're swiping it and trying it and doing it backwards and flipping it over and everything. Here's the point. You've been given a key card to the throne room of heaven that never, ever says access denied. Use it. Use your key card. What's the key card? Who's the key card? Jesus Christ. He gives you access to the throne room of God. Use the access. We've seen a lot here in these verses, verses 14 to 18. The work of Christ in these verses should just astound us. He is our peace. He makes us one. He grants us access to God. You say, how can, how can one person do all this? How can, how can he do this? Notice verse 18, it says, through him, Christ, we both have access by the Spirit to the Father. You see the Trinity at play here? See the Trinity in action on your behalf? The Father, Son, and Spirit are all working on your behalf. How does Christ do all this for us? Three times we're told how and why Christ is the one who has accomplished this. In verse 13, we saw that it said, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 15, we see it says that in his flesh, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Verse 16 says that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Here's the point. God, God doesn't just, or Christ doesn't just wave a magic wand. Hey, you're all good. Some pixie dust type stuff. No, no, no. It's more than that. See, Christ, by his shed blood, in his flesh, and through the cross, has made the ultimate sacrifice. And so he has accomplished for us reconciliation to God and access to come before him. He has accomplished for us peace with God and peace with each other. When Christ was put to death, he put to death the hostility that too often defines us. The war is over. It is. The war is over. Stop fighting what Christ has won. The broken body of Christ means our broken barriers. You say, well, how does this apply to us? What are the implications for this church today? Well, first of all, physical, social, or ethnic differences should never divide us. Never. Physical, social, or ethnic differences should never divide us. That's helpful for Ephesus because some were Jews, some were Gentiles, some were Romans. Can they all really be part of one church? Absolutely. Because they're in Christ. The barrier has been broken down by Christ. Don't you dare rebuild it. The thing is, in our human nature, we're often a lot better at building walls than we are at building bridges, aren't we? We're a whole lot better. Our, our, our walls look nice. Our bridges, I don't know if you'd want to walk across them sometimes. Sometimes those barriers that we build between each other are because of personal hurts, things that were said or not said. Things done or not done, grudges that are held, competition that drives us. Can I remind you the wall's been broken down? Seek forgiveness. Cross the aisle, as it were, 
and find reconciliation. The barrier is down. Take down your own personal barrier as well. We're prone to building up those physical, social, or ethnic barriers or those barriers of personal hurts. We're also prone to rebuilding the barriers of our version of ceremonial law. I'm not talking about circumcision or Sabbath-keeping or festivals, but things like our dress or music or food and drink or Bible versions or schooling choices. See, our version of law-keeping, the ceremonial law used to divide the Jew and Gentile, but that... that, that down. That wall is down. So therefore, our version of law-keeping should not divide us as well. The, the law of ordinance that was between Jew and Gentile is gone. Don't rebuild it. Because you're not righteous because of your version of keeping the law. You're made righteous in Christ. That's the reason we're righteous. So don't let your version of law-keeping divide you from others who are in Christ. See, we rebuild walls between Christians sometimes within churches, and we build walls between churches and other churches, and Jesus says, I've already broken down those walls. Those walls are gone. You say, what do you you mean? Maybe I can illustrate it in this way. This is the body of Christ, and we are all a part of it. Right? We're all in the body of Christ. But I think too often this is how we view the body of Christ. See, we're not in Christ to be separated back out into our own little personal bubbles of of legalism and hurt and superiority. That's not what God had in mind. He didn't reconcile us to himself, but leave us unreconciled from everyone else. Be, Be careful about sectioning yourself off to the point where you're the only one good enough for yourself. All those who are in Christ are his. In Christ, we should never be defined by our differences because he broke down those barriers. We should always be defined by our union in Christ. In 1987, President Reagan told Mr. Gorbachev to tear down that wall. Just over two years later, that wall came down and the world rejoiced. The wall of sin between us and God, it's also down. It's down because of Christ. The wall of separation between us and others is also down. It has come down in Christ. And Christ has done this great work of grace in us to reconcile us to God and to each other. Don't work to undo what Christ has done. The church is a body, the body of Christ. The church is a family. It's called the family of God. I pray that our differences would not define us, but our union in Christ would unite us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Christ who is our peace.